Talking Movies with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to episode 171 of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we'll be hearing about the use of robots in film and entertainment. But first, let's take a look at what's been happening in the world of robotics with Christine. Thank you, Jana. Being involved in the maker community, Shanmue and Kisha found that many people with non-technical backgrounds had interest in electronics and robotics, but were discouraged by technologies perceived difficult. From this experience, they set off to design an electronics platform that could be used by everyone in 2013. They noticed that most people had smartphones or tablets, so they decided to create a hardware platform for mobile devices. They have created what they call Graphical Smart Program for I.O., or GRASP.io, which is a development board that is programmed from iPhone, iPad and Android using a drag-and-drop mobile app. This device has onboard Wi-Fi as well as support motors, LCD displays, audio and sensors. In the near future, Shanmuga and Kishar plan to launch GRASP.io on a Kickstarter campaign. Could electromagnets be used to improve heart surgery? The ETH Zurich spin-off, Eon Scientific, won this year's Swiss Technology Award at the Swiss Innovation Forum with their catheter steering system for treating cardiac arrhythmias, a problem with the rate or rhythm of the heartbeat. The startup's work focuses on making conventional surgical procedures safer and simpler. They develop devices that use magnetic fields to steer instruments remotely with millimeter precision inside the human body. This device is called the Eon Focus, which allows a cardiologist to steer a long flexible tube called a catheter dexterously inside the heart to access all of her heart chambers to treat cardiac arrhythmia. CEO of Eon Scientific, Dominic Bell, believes this steering system could also be used for a variety of instruments such as guide wires and endoscopes or even capsules containing active ingredients leading directly to the source of an illness within the body. For more information on upcoming development boards and robotics and surgery, visit robohub.org. Robots have been used in filmmaking for quite some time, and recent advances are ensuring that their use will continue and probably increase in coming years. Grant Imahara is an electronics wizard who you may know from his work on the Mythbuster series or from his contributions to a huge range of famous motion pictures, including the Matrix sequels, the Star Wars prequels, Spielberg's AI Artificial Intelligence, The Lost World Jurassic Park, or Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. He is one of the leading experts in animatronics, and one of only a handful of people to have operated R2-D2. So who better to tell us about the role and future of robotics in the film industry? I am Ron Vanderclay at Supernova 2014 in Perth, WA. With me today is Grant Imahara, who I will be speaking to about the role of robotics in film and television. 
What got you interested in robotics, Grant? Oh, you know, I've been a huge robotics fan from when I was little. I think that growing up playing with Lego uh, building blocks was something that cemented the foundation of wanting to be a builder. And having that background and then seeing Star Wars for the first time, where robots and humans interacted in a meaningful way. I mean, when, when Star Wars came out, I was seven years old. And it hit me like a freight train that this is something that's awesome and that you know, I want to be able to interact with robots in this way. And so I went on to, to become a builder. And uh, now I can build robots and, and uh, robots that are of my own design. How did you get started in the field of electrical engineering? I think that electrical engineering was something that was a means for me to be able to to build things. Um, in those days, there wasn't a, a mechatronics program like they have now, you know, that combines mechanical engineering and electrical engineering into one awesome thing. I think I was on the fence between mechanical and electrical, but for, for the reason that I wanted to build electronic things primarily, that's where, that's where I leaned towards. And it wasn't until after I graduated in electrical engineering went to work at Lucasfilm for a few years and then moved to Industrial Light and Magic doing special effects, that's where I really gained the skills to be able to build robots, to machine them, you know, to take a block of aluminum or, or a plate of steel and use those tools to make them into a working robot. How did your studies in electrical engineering lead you into the film and television industry? So right after college, I had a degree in electrical engineering. I had a mentor in college. His name was Tom Holman, who also happened to be the TH of the Lucasfilm THX sound system. And so after I graduated, uh, during college I did an internship at THX, and then after I graduated they invited me to come back. So I was already on the Lucas campus for a while, and... I made a lot of friends, and one day, my friend said, look, you're good at electronics, you know radio control, at Industrial Light and Magic in the model shop, we're a little busy right now, and we could use some help. We could use a guy like you with, a, with your skill set. I'm like, okay, sounds like fun. So I took two weeks off of work from THX and went over to Lucasfilm and didn't leave there for nine years. What was your most challenging build? There are a number of challenging builds for a number of different reasons. One of them uh, that was complexity was, of course, my robot that I did for BattleBots. And that was complex because it combined electrical systems for drive and control as well as pneumatic systems for the weapon. And... At that time, when I was doing BattleBots, I had to find the resources. It wasn't like I could go to a robot store and get robot parts. I was pulling tanks from paintball and motors from uh, wheelchair and scooter stores. I mean, those are, those are the things that I used to build my robot. And, and in the end, the combination of all of those things, all of that made it one of the more complex things that I've done. 
on Mythbusters, you build a lot of robotics rigs to assist in conducting tests and experiments. Have you had any bad experiences with things going wrong? You know, the nature of our show, Mythbusters, is that we are making things that essentially haven't been made before. That, you know, nobody's ever, uh, to my knowledge, made a machine to consistently pull people's socks off of their feet. Um, or throw a steel-rimmed hat. And so with things of that nature, a lot of times it'll be maybe something doesn't quite go as expected. But for the most part, I would say the robots function as they were designed. Um, Although one thing that happened was with the sword-swinging robot, for example, I set it up so that it would cut the middle of a blade and uh, someone holding it. And... Unfortunately, just by accident, that turns out to be neck height. So it wasn't something that went wrong, but it was something that was unexpectedly dangerous. Do you think that there is a negative public perception of robotics brought about by stereotypes in fiction media, i.e. robots taking over society, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think it's true that because of popular media, films like The Terminator, for example... Sometimes robots get a negative spin, a negative perception by the public. Like, they're going to take over. They're going to become self-aware and they're going to take over like in Terminator or The Matrix, Um, both of which film franchises I've actually worked on. (laughs) But, you know, the thing is, we're fairly far away from having capable AI. There are definitely... uh, robots out there that they're uh, drones for example that they are playing with the idea of having their own AI but actually having that become a reality I'd say we're fairly far away from that just because not only the public but also politicians are a little bit afraid of, of putting a lethal force in the hands of a computer brain even though it might be you know for whatever reason significantly more accurate than than a human uh, controller but you know I don't know it's it's tough to say what we might be able to do about that because in my world I like having robots out there I like having a Roomba I like having R2D2 in my life so as far as Skynet and the T-1000 comes, I think we're a long way off from that. And on behalf of myself and the podcast, I'd like to thank you, Grant, for taking the time to speak to us and Supernova for facilitating the interview. Fascinating stuff. And we're not quite finished yet. Our interviewer, Ron, also spoke to the Creature Technology Company, which produces some of the most technologically sophisticated, creatively inspired and lifelike animatronic characters for arena spectaculars, theme parks, exhibitions, stage shows and other events around the world. So they also know a thing or two about robotics entertainment. Good morning, Richard. If I can firstly get you to introduce yourself to the listeners and outline your role at Creature Technology. My name's Richard McKenna. I'm the Chief Engineer at Creature Technology in West Melbourne. I look after all the engineers here 
we do all the design of the mechanical and the structural elements of the figures. We have to work in collaboration and conjunction with the sculptors, the designers, and particularly the creature designer, who's kind of the overseer of the performance and the, uh, the figure as a whole, as a whole system. And that takes into account everything from mechanical design, electrical design, thermal capacity, uh, material science, and a whole bunch of other uh, engineering fields. So how did Creature Technology start? What a great question. I came on board in 2010, so I'm going to work off a little bit of history that I've heard around the place. The place started not as the Creature Technology Company, but under a different name. And the first show was Walking with Dinosaurs. And a couple of producers came up with this idea to build life-size walking dinosaurs. And they started off by using cherry pickers and uh, scissor lifts and things like that. Eventually, they got Sonny Tilders on board, who's the creative director here, and uh, started designing more elaborate creatures, along with my predecessor, Trevor Ty, and a bunch of the other guys that are here. They came up with the Walking with Dinosaurs show, and uh, they were very lucky to have a backer, Jerry Ryan, of Jayco Caravans. And he was very supportive and and they built these amazing dinosaurs. They built about eight full-scale dinosaurs, uh, everything from a T-Rex to a Stegosaurus. Uh, In about eight months, I think they built eight dinosaurs. So they were building these things very quickly for a tour around Australia. And even before they had the first show, Jerry Ryan had commissioned the second set because he was so confident in the product to uh, travel around. uh, I think the second tour went to the U.S. originally. The first tour went to Europe. So after that, after walking with dinosaurs, there was a little bit of a lull, well, probably nearly 12 months, and they then got a job for DreamWorks doing a Dragon. That was about when I came on board, so about four years in. We did uh, five major characters for that and about 19 other figures between suits and other sort of uh, stunt, what we call stunt dragons, which was kind of a wrestling thing, like a, a dummy of sorts. That Tour went to the US and toured for about six months. That was a job for a customer. It was for DreamWorks, so we didn't have any control over it after that, and it got sold to some Chinese producers. Around the same time as the DreamWorks job, we also got a job to build a King Kong for the theatre, so for a musical called King Kong Live on Stage, which was produced by, at the time, our parent company, Global Creatures, was put on in Melbourne at the Regent Theatre, and that one half a dozen Helpman Awards and a bunch of Green Door Awards as well. It was a hybrid creature, so it was half string puppet, half robot, and it uh, had about 14 people to operate. That was quite a complex creature. After King Kong, we did a, a large figure for Radio City Music Hall for their Springtime Spectacular, so their Easter show. They're famous for doing Christmas shows, and they're trying to get their Easter show up. Anyway, we built this not full-scale Statue of Liberty, but it was about eight, nine metres tall, and uh, so a very large puppet, and it was to basically be the kind of climax of the show, uh, and that's due to go on stage next year in May, I think is about right. So we're going into rehearsals. The guys are heading over to do the lip syncing and those sorts of things in November this year. Uh, we're working on getting into the theme park industry at the moment, uh, and that's probably about as much as I can tell you on that. It's all very hush-hush. What else can I tell you about that? Not much, really, to be honest. It's a very secret job. 
Richard, you spoke about the puppeteering animatronics and some of the robotics. What is the basis of the technology you are using to create the figures that combine these areas? They're almost the same thing. The difference is kind of the purpose, I guess. Most of, well, all of our robots or animatronic figures are built for entertainment and they're usually built to either be live puppeteered, so as a performance, or as a recorded performance and it's a playback. So they're, they're either built to repeat a task, which is much like a normal factory robot, or they're built to do something as a remote control, a bit like a remote control toy, but obviously much more complex. It's, it has a range that it can work in and it does that very well. But outside that range, it, it doesn't function that way. So we, we try to keep that limited, you know, because, for example, these things are very large and very heavy and they can hurt themselves or maybe the actors around them uh, if they're not well controlled. So we try to keep them in a certain range. The technology is a combination of different things. We use uh, servos for the face axes, tend to be a brand called Maxon. We use those because they're very reliable. They're famous for being on the Mars rover. We use hydraulics uh, for the large axes. Generally, we use pressure control or a pressure controlled loop. So we tend to keep a lot of compliance in the axes. We don't need the precision of an assembly robot. We can have something go generally into the right spot and that's sufficient for the performance. It doesn't need to be 100% reliable in terms of its position. It doesn't need to be very precise, but it does need to be very fluid and very um, uh, soft. And we also like the axes to interplay to each other. So, for example, if you have a head and a body axis, when the head goes up, that puts a lot more load on the body going up at the same time. And that, in turn, puts a whole lot of load on the structure. So what we try to do is control that load by limiting the amount of force that each axis can put out. And what we find with that is that we get a lot of um, interplay between the axes, and that gives it a very lifelike movement. That's very interesting. So how do you go using air and hydraulics with the noise and safety aspects in mind? Yeah, very difficult to control. For example, a King Kong, uh, the noise is really paramount. In the theatre, if you go into a theatre, you stand on the stage, the whole building is built to project your voice out. So if you put in the centre of the stage a hydraulic pump, the guy in the back row can hear it pretty clearly. So we had to uh, pick the quietest pump we could find, which then put a whole bunch of other requirements on us because it had certain limitations. And then we had to cover it in uh, what we call a barney, which is a you know, bunch of sound uh, isolating material, put it on isolation mount so it didn't put too much vibration into the structure, which would then cause his fiberglass body to act as a soundboard and project it out again, and on and on and on. For another job, which I forgot to tell you about, we did the Olympics recently, the Winter Olympics. We picked a different pump, and that was uh, probably a fair bit more successful than the pump we picked for King Kong. So we'll probably use that one again, and that's a specifically designed gear pump called the Silence Pump, which is probably about three or four times quieter than a standard hydraulic gear pump. It's really hard to manage it. It's one of our big concerns. We're very lucky because most of our shows are very loud, especially when there's a lot of action on stage. So what that means is that the sound designer can afford to put a whole pile of music and sound effects and things over the top of a screaming, you know, hydraulic pump. In your area of entertainment, what are the job opportunities for technicians and engineers? I guess what we can tell them is that they do exist. In Australia, there's there's not a heap of them. You know, there's not many. I'm very very lucky. I was trained as a robotic engineer, mechatronic engineer at Swinburne. So it is, you know, I'm in the job, you know, doing working with robots, building and designing robots. But there's not a lot of them, and they're very competitive to get into. 
uh, we get a number of CVs from young guys. We regularly get contacted by guys that have been through the place, uh, you know, saying, can I come in and sweep the floor? I'll do anything to work there. But, uh, you know, there's an amount, like with any engineering, you've got to train up younger guys and, and get them into the way you want them to work as well as to be kind of useful and uh, have initiative and productivity and that sort of stuff. So if you want to get into the job, you've got to put yourself forward. Uh, I'd also say you've got to get some kind of experience. And if you're interested in the entertainment industry, get some kind of entertainment uh, industry experience, whether that's uh, as an amateur or professionally or as a vocational training, get something. Certainly that's what helped me. I uh, wanted to get into animatronics when I was at uni. I managed to find a special effects company that needed a bit of help on a job and so I uh, got involved in that. I was lucky to get a, a second job. I took a second job working on the Maya windows when I graduated. So I had a full-time regular job, but I wanted to get into animatronics. So I took a second job working, you know, from 6 till 10 at night trying to get, uh, get some experience. Uh, but they're hard to get into. They certainly don't exist as much as they used to in the film and television industry. There's probably in Australia doing animatronics two or three companies. Uh, there's John Cox in Queensland. There's us here in Melbourne. Uh, there's it's a company called Stage One that do a little bit of stuff but not very much. Then you've got to look at overseas companies and your Stan Winstons and these kind of places. Uh, we're probably one of the only companies in the world that do this scale. I know there's a Japanese company called Kokoro that do kind of dinosaur as well. Usually not one-to-one scale, usually half scale or quarter scale, something like that. Other than that, there's not a lot. They're few and far between. What type of experience are you projecting to your audience? Is it shock and awe or is it on a personal level? All of the above. You know, we, we, we're trying to give the audience a personal experience. We're trying to, you know, give them a connection to the creature, to the puppet, so that they think that they're interacting with it one-to-one, so that it looks at them directly. Uh, so, you know, eyes have to function, the eyelids have to function. It's got to look and feel real. Now, the audience will come some way to meet you on that, uh, even if they don't realise they are. So from a performance point of view, people buy into puppetry. You know, that's why Sesame Street works, because they believe it's real, even though they know it's not. They're willing to go on that journey with you to suspend their disbelief and enjoy the fact that this thing's real, even though it's not. One of our usual things that tells us we're getting it right is when the director comes and starts talking directly to the puppet rather than to the two or three guys that might be operating it. You know, the director might stand directly in front of the dragon and say, you're coming towards her too fast. You need to just slow down and talk at the puppet. And the puppet sits there and nods, you know, and he's not actually talking to the people driving it, but he thinks he is. And that's sort of a tip-off that we're on the right track. Yeah, so we're looking for that fluid movement, the interaction that feels like it's real and that sort of, it's hard to sort of define, but it's that intangible stuff. You spoke about the prospect of moving into the theme park industry. Are you looking at expanding upon the audio animatronic style from the 60s and 70s, which is heavily featured in the Walt Disney attractions? There's certainly amazing stuff that they were doing back then, and that's where the, um, the term audio animatronics seems to have originated back then. And the fact that they, they could do playback, that was when they realised they could do playback of, of motion. And the compliance that came in, so when you talk about fluency and the fluidity of the movement, that's, that's where the compliance in the axes is. So if you need to look over into the audience, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at uh, seat 23 or 24 because the audience doesn't know where it's supposed to be looking. So when you take out the restriction of having to nail an exact sight line and just have a general idea of where it needs to be, then you can 
have a much more fluid control system. You can have something that goes past where it's supposed to and then drifts back to where it needs to be eventually and gradually eliminate your errors, that sort of thing. Uh, where that becomes difficult is with if you're working with an actor and they decide to miss their mark or to land on a different spot and uh, you have to adjust. That only really works with live puppeteering. What you have to do there is adjust for what the actor might have done. So you only get away with so much playback then and you actually have to have a live puppeteer then and then it's down to the skills of the puppeteer. We put a lot of uh, control into the loop so that they can't do anything too crazy but uh, they still have to make the thing look alive and, and move in a natural way. What does the future hold? Will there be a point where you'll have a large character on stage being controlled by an actor off stage providing voice and movement via motion capture? It's certainly possible. At the moment, the technology is probably a little bit prohibitive in terms of costs and uh, processing power. But I could certainly see a time where you could do that, where you could have the, you know, the actor in a room with uh, motion capture tools and uh, the figure of whatever kind performing in front of an audience. Where that gets problematic is probably moving it around. So you still need to have something that does a gross movement of it. Uh, I don't think they've quite nailed the uh, the bipedal type things. If it's and having anything that actually isn't supported by some structural frame is very difficult. Uh, For example, all of our large uh, quadruped creatures have a structural frame that holds them up and then their legs hang off that and they move fluidly and they contact the ground and they track the ground and all these things, but the legs don't hold them up. You can't build the structure light enough and strong enough and build in all the balance and things required to be able to do that. It's just uh, far too difficult for us at this stage. One day perhaps it'll be possible, but it's still too hard for us. The, the risk of something like that falling over and crushing a, an actor would be <laughs> way too high. So tell me, how have you been able to operate so successfully? The reason that we've been able to develop the technology here has been the team is amazing. Uh, we've had some absolute you know, mad scientists here that have managed to pull it off. And at this stage of the business's development, we're fortunate to have um, a very strong backer in Jerry Ryan to keep us together. We're a project-based business like so many uh, other businesses and so we go through a lot of peaks and troughs and the reason that we can keep everybody together is because Jerry Ryan supports the business and says, that's all right, we'll just keep it going and then you know it'll, it'll come back. And uh, when we get good jobs like the Winter Olympics come through the door and uh, you know, we can be paid well, we can return the, return the favour to Jerry, but uh, up until then he supports us. So I can't say enough about how important that is for us as a business. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without that level of support. Uh, the reason for us to get into stable businesses like theme park industry is because they're big businesses and they are stable. You know, For example, if you read the most recent numbers on uh, Disney World, they have 18 million people go through there a year and each one of those people pays $150 to get in the gate that day plus all of their food and beverages and all their accommodation and all that sort of thing. They're huge, huge businesses. So if you want to be in a business to develop this kind of technology, it's got to be one that has enough cash flow. This stuff is at the level that we're doing it at in the scale, the complexity of the axes, you know, they're expensive things to build, especially in a country like Australia. We, we do occasionally look at, you know, well, what's coming out of China because they can build things a lot cheaper than us. So how do you keep ahead of the competition and run to budget? Yeah, it's a little bit of an arms race. You know, you have to keep making them better and better. The great thing about the puppeteering is that a simple puppet can have a great impact. Complex puppets don't always add 
you know, there's a diminishing value of returns. Having said that, some of our figures will have 40 axes in them, you know, and that's it starts to get pretty complex when you think that they're not just 40 axes each operating independent of the other. They all operate interacting with each other. So even the smallest sort of movement of the lip or an eyebrow puts a load on, on the chassis. It's got to travel all the way back through all the actuators and, and be accounted for it's one way or another. So it's, it's quite a challenge when you have that many axes in series, if you like. On behalf of myself and the podcast, I'd like to thank you, Richard, for your time. All right, terrific. Thanks, Ron. And that's the end of the interviews. If you fancy trying your hand at using robots in filmmaking, then why not create a festive video entry for our annual festive season competition? Entries are still welcome, and some of the best picks will be featured on our dedicated YouTube channel. Just visit our website at robotspodcast.com to find out more. The whole team behind the Robots Podcast wishes you a very merry festive season, and we'll be back just after Christmas. Until then, goodbye. Making Movies with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.